Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. He said, you know, I wouldn't be doing any of this if I hasn't lost my eyesight. He said, when I was shot and sent to prison, I was hopeless, I was suicidal. And then uh, for some incredible bit of uh, uh, good fortune, I ended up in this bug house cell and my cellmate who was assigned to me to keep an eye on me was Nathan Leopold. And Nathan taught me how to read and write braille and then shared with me classical literature that he had been getting from the library because he wanted to read it. He was, you know, was, I think he believed that if he could learn to read and write Braille for himself or at least read it, he could read after the lights went out at 10 o'clock. What he said at the end of that was that if I w wasn't blind and if I didn't go to jail for what I did, I would have never met Nathan Leopold. I would have never found the knowledge that gave me the opportunity for the vision. And that's what he pursued with most incredible vigor that I can, I, I, can, I can barely describe it. The graphic novel doesn't even describe the intensity of that vision. That's the voice of Charlie Rizzo alongside the music of blind Willie Johnson. Charlie talking to us about his father who was blinded as a teenager in the 1930s and ended up sharing a jail cell with one of the most notorious criminals of the 20th century, Nathan Leopold. As a result, he discovered literature and became a visionary writer of poems and essays. And this story of Matt Rizzo blinded while attempting to rob a shop in Chicago nearly a century ago has blossomed into an award-winning graphic novel called The Hunting Accident. And tonight, for the Writing on Air Festival on East Leeds FM, we hear from the creators of this book about blindness, love of words, prison cells, and a son's decades-long quest to tell his father's story. Nathan Leopold, who mentored the just-blinded teenage Matt Rizzo while in prison, was part of a duo Leopold and Loeb, whose uh, philosophy-inspired murder resulted in one of the most famous anti-death penalty court cases in history, prompted a film by Hitchcock, project by Orson Welles, and most recently, this unlikely graphic novel about blindness, poetry, prison, fathers and sons. We'll hear from the graphic novel's creators just a bit. Dave Carlson and the artist Landis Blair. But first, we catch up with Charlie Rizzo, who learned of his father's strange story of lost sight and discovered poetic vision more than 60 years ago and brought this story to the world through this book, The Hunting Accident. So hello, Charlie, and thank you for joining us for the Writing on Air Festival and East Leeds FM all the way from Florida. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. In a bit, we're going to hear Landis Blair and Dave Carlson, the artist and the writer who I just mentioned, who brought the story of your father's and his writings and his encounters to life in the form of this novel, the graphic novel, The Hunting Accident, which has had an amazing journey traveling around the world. We'll hear all about how it came to be. To start with, the experience of handing over the, your own vision for this story, which is a story you set out to tell decades ago almost and went through lots of journeys before it realized in this particular form. Just curious from the vantage point now, spring of 2021, sitting in Florida during a global pandemic, how it feels thinking back 
having your vision, this vision brought to life? Well, it's a, yeah, it's a great question because it's a sort of the question of the genesis of mm. the project. And so I, you know, of course this project started many, many, many years before the graphic novel. I had uh, my father uh, and Dave and Lannis will talk more about him in terms of the storyline and the graphic novel is based on a true story. My father's endless search for knowledge and in his search, uh, he uh, ended up writing uh, several essays and an opus. Uh, the opus included uh, a very large work on uh, the writings of five philosophers through time from Shakespeare to, uh, to, to Virgil, let's say, and then several in between. And so uh, he, when my father died, I promised that I would try and get his work published because it is of that quali quality and uh, uh, I think significant. So uh, I set out on this journey and I, and I, you know, the vision was to get his work published by a legitimate press. And so it was, how do I get there when no one knows who he is? Um, so when he passed away, he left uh, all this work and, you know, I, I was overwhelmed. Like, what do I do with it? How, how do I move it forward and make something happen? I just can't, can't let it end up in a dumpster like so many other great artists work ends up being. So my father was a poet and a writer, learned all of this in prison uh, and, uh, and then went on and really the journey he was on was uh, the most remarkable. So he was blind and uh, he went through this process of, you know, learning Braille in prison from Nathan Leopold, which you'll hear more about, but then uh, taking that and then trying to find every book that was written in the canon of Western literature uh, and try and find ideas that lived in there. And he did, and those ideas he wrote about. So he left all of that, and then I had to figure out, how do I get this in front of people? It's, I think it's valid. So I started the journey in a very humble way, um, not being a writer. I thought, oh, I'll learn how to write. So I went to a, a special uh, couple of schools just on the art of writing. And well, I realized it wasn't possible uh, it's like, you know, trying to play a symphony and you're, you're a two-year student on a, in a instrument, let's say. Uh, very difficult. Uh, and so, uh, especially being old. And so I, uh, I, I thought, well, I need to find someone that can help me. And then I found Dave. Talked to Dave and Dave said, yeah, I'm a filmmaker. And so Dave sat down with me. I said, let's have lunch. So we sat down and after a long lunch, you know, he was trying to digest everything I had told him, uh, the story of my father, which is what the hunting accident is about, and then his quest for knowledge. And so I, Dave recommended, hey, uh, let's, let's, we're gonna try this in a multi-creative way to, to, uh, to tell the story. So one of, one of the aspects of that strategy was a graphic novel. When he told me that, I was like, a graphic novel? I, no, no, this needs to be a piece of literature, maybe a play, but, not a graphic, no, I had no idea what a graphic novel really was. And then I read a couple of Persephilis and a piece by Art Spiegelman. And these are some of the great graphic novels. And then I began to understand you can tell a story that way. And Dave was really wanted to write the storyboard for the film. He wanted to do a film, he wanted to do a play, he wanted to do, a v, uh, VR piece, uh, a move, you know, so it, Dave had all these ideas and Dave, as you will find out, uh, is a very creative, inspirational person as is Landis, uh, you know, and so we, we set out on a quest. We, we joined forces and uh, we started looking for an artist uh, for the graphic novel. And we had both uh, looked at four or five different uh, portfolios. And then Landis came along. We both like Landis. Uh, so, so now the graphic novel has been, this is the first piece of the story that has been received in the public. Now we have also have a, a contract with Paramount Pictures to, to make this into some kind of series for Netflix or Amazon. And so I'm beginning to generate the initial hope was to generate interest in who this guy Matt Rizzo was. What did he really write about? 
were there stories here that were worth publishing? And so hopefully if that comes out, the graphic novel, of course, now in Europe and well in France, the, the, you know, sold out 10 times apparently on, on reprints. So it, you know, and it's going to Italian and it's going to So as this word spreads, I hope it comes back this way on the other side of the pond and that uh, there is a, a renewed interest because the stories that are there are the stories of, they're timeless, right? stories of Virgil and Dante and, uh, you know, all these great uh, poets that left these stories for all of us to share uh, for purpose. There was a purpose there. I was out uh, for breakfast with my friend Charlie. This is about 10 years ago. And he was telling me about his father, Matt, who he thought growing up was blinded in a hunting accident. It was such a remarkable story. And here we are now. <laughs> where it's, the story's been published in the United States. There's a French edition out now. Uh, there's a Spanish and Italian versions coming. And the story that Charlie told me is, um, uh, is continuing. here talking from Leeds all the way to Chicago with Dave Carlson. That's Dave Carlson talking, the, the author of the book, the graphic novel, The Hunting Accident. And with us also is Landis Blair, the, the artist, the illustrator who created all the images in this story. And Dave, you were talking about a man named Matt Rizzo, whose story started in the 1930s. And here we are 80 years, oh, 90 years almost later. And his story is now traveling across the world in the form of this graphic novel. And we're talking here in the Writing on Air Festival on East Leeds FM about the Matt Rizzo story, the hunting accident, and what it means to take a story with blindness all throughout it and turn it into a graphic novel. This Matt Rizzo, who you mentioned, he ended up in jail with a criminal named Nathan Leopold. And for a listener here in Leeds or Yorkshire, that name Nathan Leopold might not ring a bell, but certainly for someone in Chicago in the United States, it does. Can, who was Nathan Leopold and how did his story converge with Matt Rizzo's? Yeah, Nathan Leopold was uh, in 1924 uh, convicted of... Um, murdering, kidnapping and murdering a 14-year-old boy for the thrill of it. Uh, it was at the time, it was known as the crime of the century and movies were made about it. Orson, Compel Orson Welles made one. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope is based on that story. Uh, and he was uh, sent to Stateville Prison in Joliet, Illinois. Uh, he'd been there for about 10 years and then Matt Rizzo ended up becoming his cellmate because he, well, Matt was in the mob uh, here in Chicago and uh, he was blinded in a shootout. And then when he was sent to state bill, they didn't know what to do with him. So they stuck him in uh, what was called the bug cell. And he happened to get there in the same week that Leopold's uh, partner in crime, Richard Loeb, uh, had been slashed to death in the shower. And so they pulled Nathan Leopold out of the general population to keep him safe because they didn't know why, uh, you know, what had happened there. So he ends up becoming the, uh, well, Nathan Leopold and Matt Rizzo become cellmates at Stateville. Well, Matt uh, discovered literature in prison with uh, Nathan Leopold. He, uh, Leopold was a 
polyglot and he uh, studied languages and all kinds of, I mean, he was a very intelligent human being. Uh, but, um, and, and when Rizzo first got to prison, here he is, you know, he's blind, newly blind. He's in an eight by 12 foot cell with, um, at the time, the most heinous criminal in the country. And so he thought his life was over. He just wanted to commit suicide and he wanted Leopold to help him. And uh, Leopold instead uh, taught himself to read Braille so he could teach Matt Rizzo how to read. And then he immersed him in a classical education. So he was, you know, reading Homer and Virgil and Dante and, and uh, it just completely uh, directed the course of the rest of his life. And Dave, you started working with Charlie, the son of Matt Rizzo. Charlie had been trying to find different ways to tell this story over quite a few years. Charlie had always wanted his father's writings to be published because his father spent his entire life trying to get some of his uh, writings published. And Charlie was very intimately involved in uh, his father's writing process because of the fact that his father was blind. So Charlie uh, assisted him in, uh, in his writing from a very young age. My original thought was to uh, do a transmedia rollout of the story. And so uh, I worked with a playwright to create a stage play. Uh, and I had written a screenplay um, that I thought could be made into like a storyboard for a movie if I made it into a graphic novel. And that's uh, when I contacted uh, Landis Blair to uh, participate in the uh, process of bringing the story to life uh, as uh, as the illustrator. Uh, it's it's difficult to write a story where the protagonist is blind because I wanted the audience or the reader to be able to see the world through Matt's eyes. Well, well the, the the initial thoughts when he pitched the idea to me was it was it was this incredible story, but I I I left. The meeting with Dave and I thought, well, this is this is never going to happen because it, it was it was such a <laughs> it was such a crazy kind of thing he was proposing to to put together here, and so I, I was uh, incredibly grateful to that that it, that it actually. I mean, this is before I knew Dave and how determined he was to 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 make this happen, and it um, and so when I got called back to to work with him on it, it it started this process that um, we it, it started a process of learning for both of us because as Dave said he hadn't read a graphic novel and I and while I had done um, my own illustration and a bunch you know, all sorts of other kinds of art I hadn't ever done comics before I'd never drawn a graphic novel and so Dave and I embarked on I mean let not even talking about the blindness part of it yet we just sort of well I guess we, we blindly walked into this <laughs> this project um and so it was uh when dave had me start storyboarding the the book it it the process quickly revealed all these challenges that i would would never have anticipated just because i i hadn't thought about you know if your protagonist is is blind that changes visually what you can or how, how you're showing this character interact with the space around them. And so uh, I, I remember having to change things frequently in the sketches because you know, I I'd, I'd draw something and suddenly realize, oh, wait, he wouldn't have been able to see that. You know, how would he know? Um, and, and, you know, Dave would point it out sometimes um, as well, you know, when he noticed like, well, wait, he, he wouldn't, I mean, he wouldn't know where the light switch is or, or, or something you know, as, as simple as that. And so it really formed the it, it, I guess it forced us to think a lot more intentionally even about the, the story and how it visually would appear on the page. And Dave, in your unique way of producing, which, and we'll say that you've, you produce things like spectacles, you produce events, you've produced a lot of different types of things over, over the years and knowing a bit about how you started to explore the idea of blindness, there were experiments involved, I think, including even locking a bunch of people or maybe not locking them, but putting them all in a completely dark room for a long period of time in order to find out 
hear from them what it felt like. So what were some of the ways in which you tried to sort of just get into that experience of blindness? Landis and I spent uh, two days light sealing uh, our studio so that we could make it so dark that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And then I invited uh, eight or nine uh, of my adventurous friends to, uh, I said, let's, I want to know what it's like to be blind. And so uh, I'm going to, we're going to sit in this room for a while and see what that's like and see how long we can do it. And so we uh, gathered on a Saturday uh, and I gave everybody uh, masks to cover their eyes with. And I told them, I said, okay, through the door there is a couch and places to sit. So, and then I gave them a white cane and I said, find your way in, find a seat. And when everybody's in, I'll close the door and we'll start and we'll just see what happens. And uh, so once everybody was in, uh, I said, okay, you can take your masks off. Uh, and and we did, and it didn't change anything because uh, you still could not see uh, anything. And I I wanted everyone to have the effect of having their sight taken away from them. So you know by taking the mask off uh, and not being able to see, I think that kind of set the tone for the next several hours. That uh, was filled with some experiments of. You know, I had some peanut butter and jelly sandwich material out. I said, you can make a sandwich if you want. Uh, we passed around some different objects to see if people could identify them and different scents, uh, to, you know, that, that, so it was sort of this experiment to, um, uh, to just sit in blindness for a while or in, in darkness anyways, and, and see what that's like. And so these ideas, how did they start to flow into your, your work, Landis, where you had uh, particular epiphanies and thought, oh, this is a way to, to convey something about blindness? The first one that comes to mind is, is, a, is the moment in the book where Matt actually does go, when, he, when he's shot in the face and he, he goes blind. And it was, it was something that I knew that visually had to be impactful, but through through this the thinking with Dave and kind of exploring what it meant to be blind that I remember that scene evolving in that that there's there's a double page spread where on the left so the page before that you there's a gunshot and then there the, there's no text in the page it's just a gigantic eyeball on the left and on the right page it's it's just a silhouette then I guess a black circle and uh, and so that wanted that startling kind of page turn, but then it became clear that, you know, that's not enough. And so then we had to, we made the decision that when you turn the page again, then it's just two solid pages of black and the, the feeling wanting to create that, okay, yes, this is visually interesting, but then suddenly realizing, oh, this is not going to change. And so then even you turn the page again, and it's still all black, but then there's some text. So you realize that Matt's listening and hearing things. And so that's kind of a bit of what Dave was alluding to with how he wanted people with the masks to feel, have the sense that they were no longer in control of, you know, they can't decide to take this off. And so I, I feel like that uh, that sequence in, in the book is is a similar thing where, where you, you, you expect there to be some kind of dramatic visual representation of this, but then to turn the page again and realize, oh wait, it's still it's still black, and you turn it again, oh, it's still black. It it's kind of drives the point home that this isn't going to change. Well, and I have to say that in some ways you sell yourself short when you say it's a solid page of black, because actually it's something <laughs> far more captivating and 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 I don't know, almost. Uh, existential because it's rather than a solid page of black which would be quite easy to create it's actually an incredibly meticulously etched sort of pattern of black but there's actually white spots yeah, off yeah, i mean because specs, it's yeah. so it's actually something which in my experience of just you know closing your eyes and what you don't actually experience is total darkness yeah working with landis was uh really interesting because i didn't quite know uh, what he would come up with. And then when we actually sat down after we'd done all the thumbnails and, and sorted through the, uh, 
you know, the flow of the book, uh, to have him do the first actual piece of finished art as one solid page of crosshatched, you know, I don't know, it it wasn't filler uh, by any means. Uh, It was, uh, (laughs) I realized uh, we were in for quite a journey. Well, I think that's one of the things about the book. You know, we've talked about the story, but just it as a work of art itself, as a work of narrative art, but then a, as a work of visual art, of graphic art. I mean, I think it it starts to do things conceptually and stretch ways of thinking about storytelling and especially about blindness and sight and vision. So, Dave, I'm wondering if you've got a page from the book that maybe especially enchants you or or in this moment maybe strikes you as interesting that you just want to describe for us on the radio yeah the experiment that we had done uh with blindness and sitting in darkness for a long time uh taught me something and that lesson ended up in the book at the at the beginning of uh chapter 11 uh under principles of sound uh you know the story followed Dante's Inferno because Matt Rizzo and Nathan Leopold were housed in a panopticon style prison and he was reading Dante's Inferno so the circles of hell that were um, part of uh, the Inferno were also very real circles of hell in Stateville prison that he was living through. And what Landis managed to do was transform over time uh, the images of the prison inside uh, uh, Matt's imagination uh, into uh, the Inferno. So there's a scene where uh, they're in the final circle of hell and it's, um, it is the, uh, Let's see. It's everybody's in ice, right? The whole the final circle of hell in Dante's Inferno is completely encrusted in ice. And so Landis has a double page spread of Matt Rizzo and Nathan Leopold as sort of, you know, Dante and Virgil being led through the uh, these layers of hell. Uh, And there's a snowstorm outside the prison and Matt is sitting outside uh, reading this final chapter and Leopold comes out to him and says, you know, it's a little cold to be reading with your fingers, isn't it? And he tells him, yeah, I'm in the ninth circle of hell, a lake of ice. Uh, That's why you never rat. The last circle of hell is reserved for traitors. And Leopold says like Alberigo, And he says, oh, that's the guy who couldn't cry. Yeah, he's quite interesting. Leopold says his tears were so frozen that all of his grief was turned inside and his anguish was just bottled up inside him for eternity. So now they're sitting outside on a bench and they're having this discussion with all of this snow. It's really a a deep snowstorm. And Matt says, it must have snowed a lot because the world is muted. It's like a blanket has been draped over everything and it feels uh, claustrophobic. Uh, At first, the darkness seemed like an ocean, but it gets smaller. And then he asks Leopold, he says, try try this, close your eyes, what do you see? And they go through this little experiment where he's, um, he said, thinks it's looking like into a very dark hole. And Matt tells him, yeah, you do it long enough and it stops being anything. You forget about the blackness. Everything is just what my fingertips and ears tell me. So the snow, it's like I'm being suffocated. And, And that was a direct result of some of the, research I had done, uh, not only uh, in our blind experiment, but uh, there was a a short film called Notes on Blindness by uh, John Hull, who uh, recorded his thoughts as he was going blind. And they actually made it into a virtual reality experience as well. Uh, And it, it really is a really unique view of what happens in the imagination uh, to um, uh, to see the world if you're blind. That's a great hearing that description and the layering 
the prison, Leopold, Matt Rizzo, and then suddenly Dante, Virgil, Circles of Hell, and back out to this. And the way that the novel, the graphic novel, moves between those spaces is is something unlike anything I've come across, seen, or read before. Landis, do you have a page that you want to describe? Uh, I th yeah, there, what, one of the sequences that I was happy with how, how it came together the is uh, I think it's shortly it's not too long after that uh, that section is right after Matt finishes reading uh, Dante's Inferno and he's he's upset with Leopold because Leopold is still resisting um, to help him commit suicide but so, so Leopold is talking to him but there there's a two-page sequence and, and they've got playing in the background they've Leopold has put on the, the, this, this phonograph that they have and it's playing box uh, cello uh, cello suite the, the first uh, cello suite And so throughout then the panels of this page, you have this weaving. You, you see the music weaving in and out of, of the panels kind of surrounding Matt and Leopold, but also leading your eye through the page. And it, there's, uh, it ends up being this thing that kind of, it blinks Leopold and, and Matt, but then it goes on to the other, the next page. And then there's a, of this dark cross hatching, there's a blend out to white and Leopold standing out in the light and Matt is still sitting in the cross hatching, but the, 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 around him is the shadow of uh, Leopold's father who has got his arm over Leopold. And so it's, it's the, it, the juxtaposition of both Matt is still in the dark and yet he, he's leading, he, he's helping Leopold, Leopold's helping Matt at the same time, but they're linked by piece of music that's um, that's providing some some level of healing <sighs> that's great to hear that description and I think just yeah bringing those things to mind here on the radio is is uh, it's nice to just let them settle in well the page I was going to describe yeah go ahead Dave I remember at the end of our blind experiment, the, we had a period of imposed silence for about an hour. Mm. And it was really uh, an interesting thing to be sitting in a room with, you know, eight people and it's silent and nobody can see anything. And the way, I, and then with the conclusion of that um, period of time, uh, I uh, ended it by playing um, box cello suite number one. And I remember thinking, oh, that is such a relief to hear this. And I had a little glimpse that maybe uh, I, I could survive uh, if I had become blind, uh, because there is still beauty in the world, um, even though I can't see it. I can experience it through this music. And the cello suites music, but the cello, the Bach cello suites in particular, weave throughout the story, and in, in fact throughout also Charlie's life as well as, as as a cellist. And in the in the in the hunting accident, we see Charlie playing the cello, and the cello being smashed at one point as well. 
but yeah, the music. He picked, he, yeah, Charlie picked uh, activities to do as a kid that his father could experience. So playing mm. the cello was one of them. He also took up tap dancing. He was learning to be right. uh, yeah. a tap dancer until it became not cool to do that. Mm. Well, Paige, I was going to describe, I was going to, I changed my mind. So since we talked before the show, is this one here, this, it's, it's kind of a montage, kind of a collage, a bit like the one Landis was describing. So, and it's just a series of images with, with the Braille sheet, the paper coming out of the Braille typewriter kind of wrapping across a bit like the music did in the one that, that Landis was just describing. But it's a series of scenes of Charlie as a child, maybe around 12 or so. Uh, with his father. And again, he had many years of being in this domestic space with his father. And one, they're at the, the kitchen table, Matt's at the typewriter, um, smoking as well. And the text says, since my father wouldn't talk about my mother, uh, I began to look at what he wrote for clues. And then mostly he wrote about old dead poets. And Dave, you've mentioned already Dante and Virgil, but Homer, uh, Milton, Walt Whitman, Emerson among the writers. And then pretty boring is the next comment. And Charlie is going off with the dog with his, with, and then uh, I really hated Chicago winters. So we see the two of them huddled in the cold apartment uh, and a little street shot of Rizzo insurance and then off to a summer space. And then, but summer in the city was hard to beat. And there Matt's out uh, on the beach in Lake Michigan. And then in the lower right corner, Matt's still alone in the apartment writing and smoking and sort of you see the separation. But in looking at this page again too, what I saw is just another kind of blindness too, which is the blindness of, maybe blindness is slightly too strong a word, but between generations, you know, in this case, a son seeing, but maybe not seeing, not understanding his father, wanting to understand, but then also wanting to escape out into the world. And that the way blindness is, you know, it's a physical thing, but it's also something, I mean, it's so many other, aspects of our lives there's there's moments of blindness and moments of clarity and yeah I guess to take from there we're going to hear from we're going to hear a bit of Matt's voice in a little bit here um, because there are recordings that were made of him reading some of his writings but just maybe that idea of the other ways in which blindness kind of ripples through the story beyond the, the literal blindness any thoughts either of you on, on that well, I would jump back first just to the process of writing that mm. that Charlie was involved in was uh, and these recordings that we have of Matt yeah. are, um, are are part of he would he would um, dictate into uh, a tape recorder and then uh, his thoughts, his writing, and then he would send that uh, out to be transcribed. And then the transcription would come back and Charlie would sit down and read the transcription out loud to his father for uh, proof, you know, spelling check and making sure that's what he wanted to say. The thoughts from Matt's head being turned into sort of going into these different forms of medium. It's interesting. I mean, you think about the story itself ending up in the form of this book, which which may turn into a film, but how how this flow of ideas, you know, that started from Matt to the page, to the Braille, to Charlie, to reading out loud, to other text, then leading into to this story. In that sense, I mean, the work that you've all, you both done in this process is, I mean, it's, it's so different from just sitting down to, to, to tell a story as this kind of um, abstracted process. It's really, you're, you're deeply involved in this sort of chain of communication in ways that are, that are strange to ponder even. I, I I like that thought of continuing that chain of uh, of communication and kind of seeing that lineage of um, I guess of knowledge and of story being passed down and that that I mean that starts I mean that that's the one of the the themes through the book with with Leopold you know, taking this this uh, this knowledge in, in literature and passing it along to Matt and so in a sense. Dave and I working on this book is a continuation of that legacy that Leopold, well, I guess Leopold didn't start, you know, the, the poets started it before him. And mm. so it's, it, it is a beautiful thought of thinking of this as one more link in that, that chain. Mm. 
And the book is the the graphic novel is so full of, of sort of links and flows, as you say, even from one page to the next. There's somehow there's a sense of continuity in it. It's interesting because comics, on the one hand, the idea of a comic strip in the initial form, and then the graphic novel that you know, the Art Spiegelmans and Chris Wares and others kind of evolved, is about sort of distinct units and kind of the idea of you know film frames chopped up. But at the same time, there's 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 ways in which they flow that is the opposite of that idea of a series of discrete images. I, I definitely wanted, or I should say, I, when I read comics or graphic novels, what I appreciate is the, the stories that, or, or, or the, uh, the artists and, and the stories that they're, they're illustrating that, that, slow, that slow you down as a mm. reader, that, that mm. force you to spend time on the page, or I guess don't force, force you, but you, you want to spend more time, where, whereas there's, at least for me, too, too frequently with, with comics, it's, it's hard not to sometimes just read the, the balloons. You're not mm. really looking at the mm. pictures. Yeah. And so I, I like it, especially in books when I'm, when I get to these passages where I, do, I where, where it flips somehow in my mind, that's the ideal of where I, I almost stop paying attention to the words because I just, I want to look at the pictures and kind mm. of be absorbed in it. And so with what you're talking about, the flowing with the, the spreads in the book. Um, I mean, D Dave very kindly kind of, he, uh, he let me indulge in that. And he, as, he, as he's told me, he, he started taking text out at places, you know, letting us kind of just dwell hmm. on the images. Landis's artwork is so dense and intense, and it takes him so long to do the work. I mean, he spent three years solid uh, working on uh, the illustrations, I mean, six days a week. Um, and so the intensity of these drawings is uh, part of the impact of, of the book. And so, yeah, I was pulling out all kinds of text, the, the more he would um, put onto the page. And, uh, and the, the length of the process allowed us to study each panel, each page, each moment. And for me, as a filmmaker, you know, the editor uh, controls the pacing, but it was a real delight to understand in the um, graphic novel format that the reader controls the pacing. And so we kind of hit upon this um, way of, of layering the story, both horizontally and vertically. And uh, Landis was really key at, uh, at making, uh, you could, and then put it this way, you could read the book in about two, three hours, just reading the, uh, uh, the bubbles, or you could spend three days reading the book and taking in the imagery that he um, uh, cross-hatched on the page. It brings up so many ways in which jumping between different ways of experiencing the world, flows of time, as you say, two different ways of reading the book, the fact that your brain when you're reading it is that there's that almost that bit of a struggle in the brain between text and images and how you balance them and that flip even reminds me of something Buster Keaton said. There's an interview with uh, in, with Studs Terkel actually that there was a time that he and Charlie Chaplin had a competition to see who could make a silent film with the fewest subtitles, um, and the idea being uh, and he even says specifically I did it with with you know. Chaplin did it with 23, but I was able to do an entire full-length film with only 16 subtitles um, in the great Buster Keaton voice. And the idea being exactly what you were even saying, like, can the image, when can the image make the text not necessary? And well, well, in realizing, I mean, especially, I, I love Buster Keaton and, and the old silent films and, and what, what I think they display very well that, that, is, that is often lost with well, at least for me, when I watch movies now or things, is that you, that it's okay to let the the viewer do some work that that 
um, I love it when in the silent films you see them having a conversation and you can't hear it. And then as you're saying frequently, they don't actually put up the subtitles because it's, it's you have to fit, you know, it's clear enough what the scenario is, but it allows, it, uh, as a viewer, at least I find that it, it pulls me in more because it's, it's almost like you're, um, you're, you're the final piece and putting it together as opposed to just letting it kind of wash, wash over you. Mm. And different lists, different viewers of the film, just like with the book might, might imagine different lines of dialogues in that moment as yes, well, which yeah. is, which is an interesting thing. It's almost a, yeah, well, it's what good theater or other things do. It, it really says, yeah, the, the, the audience or the reader in this case, or the viewer really does have to yeah. meet it halfway. Some of the imagery that Landis came up with in terms of representing um, not only the imagination, but uh, perhaps the shadow that hangs over uh, the story. Uh, he there was one image that he came up with that we we started calling the Ubermensch uh, because Leopold and Loeb had um, the, been reading Nietzsche and their misreading of Nietzsche was what led them to think they could commit the perfect crime. And Landis drew these large, rounded silhouette figures that sort of haunted uh, Leopold and Loeb every time they appear in the book um, or often in the book. And it was just uh, such a great way to represent uh, the layers uh, that are going on in the lives of these people. It definitely went through evolutions, but it, it emerged pretty quickly on when I was doing thumbnails. Uh, when, when Dave gave me the, the screenplay at the beginning for me to do the kind of storyboarded out, he kind of let me, let me be for, uh, I mean, it was a couple months that I would, I mean, we would meet maybe once a week and talk about the, pa the pages I had, um, had just sketched out, but it was, it it, slowed, it emerged in that process of doing the thumbnails. And, and while they weren't well-defined because they were these tiny little um, you know, postage stamp size kind of thumbnails, it it became clear to me that it was, at least for me reading the story, that it it seemed really important that this this kind of haunting legacy that you know, Leopold is this fascinating character and it's hard not to be enamored of him and yet there's this shadow that's always hangs over his story, you know, no matter what your what avenue you're investigating about him, you can't ever quite forget the shadow of what he did. And so this figure of or the you know the, that we ended up calling the Ubermensch, it uh, it became a visual uh, representation of, kind of almost almost like a signifier of this is this is important, or it was almost like adding a uh, an undercurrent of emotion, at least for me, in those scenes that needed it, or, or kind of to show that yes, there's a lot more going on here than um, than what you might just be reading in the, in the text. I think what's interesting about this period of time that we're living in, this pandemic, where mm -hmm. we are uh, isolated and have been isolated for quite some time from what our lives are normally like, uh, there's a real strong parallel between what's going on now and what Matt experienced by going blind and being forced to live in this eight by 12 foot cell. One of the things that he uh, had to do was uh, free himself. And Leopold says to him, look, you're never going to be free unless you free yourself from the prison in your mind. And I think literature can be uh, the thing that takes us in our imagination and takes us outside of our, uh, our present day or from, uh, takes us beyond the limitations that we are experiencing in the everyday world, especially now with the uh, lockdown that we've been experiencing.
And what's your vision thinking way out ahead into the future of kind of where this story, this book in particular, but the things that then might grow from it, is there anything that in your deeper dreams you hope? At least for my, my part, it's just been, this past year has been extremely rewarding. I feel like the book came out just at the right time in France because it was a few years ago, it came out here in the States. And I've heard a couple people say that yeah, this book was, uh, was perfect for the, the time, I mean, kind of alluding to what Dave said there, that people mm -hmm. are locked at home and can't go out. And you know, the story is about Matt being locked, he's locked in the cell there. Seeing how people have responded to it in France this year has opened the story up in a new way. For me, it's been a uh, refreshing thing to kind of be pulled back in this, in this world of, of the book and have, uh, have it seen through new eyes and kind of brought, brought back, like being able to inhabit that space again, because it was a, it was such a, uh, became such a comforting space to be in working on the story with Dave and, and, and the how Matt and Leopold became these, you know, these real friends almost in your, you know, at least the way I was thinking with the amount of time I was spending, you know, trying to be in their heads. Mm. Um, it's, so it's, it's almost like kind of meeting an old friend again now, having people discover him for the first time. I'm working on a Broadway musical version of the story that I would love to see uh, take the stage once Broadway opens back up. It's also being developed as uh, a limited series, a television series. Uh, so we'll see how all of that plays out. But, uh, you know, it's really the, uh, it, it's the literature that is being referenced in the, in the book and, and what Matt was writing about that I think is going to be the, uh, the enduring uh, will we'll continue to endure and to feed people's imaginations, feed their lives in, uh, in ways that nothing else can. So from there, I want to bring in some voices because in the process of creating this book, their their voices and certainly voices for, for those who are blind take on a whole different level of significance as a way to understand somebody. So you had Matt Rizzo's voice. Was did you have the recordings early on in the process? Were they were they were they always present or did, did they come come later that you were able to, to listen and actually hear Matt's voice? When I started doing the research on the story mm -hmm. after Charlie told me about it. Uh, he gave me uh, mm. these recordings uh, of his father that he had kept. And so I, my first exposure to Matt Rizzo was through his writings and through his voice, uh, these tapes of, his, uh, of him recording his writings uh, into a, a, a recorder. And it was interesting to me because one of the reasons that Charlie would always have to uh, read him back the transcriptions was because Matt was very concerned about capitalization and punctuation. Hmm. And whenever he talked about a voice, uh, Matt was always careful to capitalize the letter V in voice because he thought that it was the voice of the poet uh, the, the phrase, the secret language of the poet is used often in the book, and it really has to do with um, the voice that is speaking through this uh, ancient literature uh, that somehow has uh, continued to have meaning, uh, you know, 2000 years later. Um, so it's, and it came to me at a period in my life where I needed to hear the voice of the poet. And so there was a real fit there between um, what Matt was trying to communicate and what I needed to hear. It certainly made 
made the character of Matt feel a lot more real. To, I mean, yeah. it kind of grounded the reality of, of this story, and it it added a level of importance to kind of what we were doing because it was it wasn't just you know, a story about this man who actually existed. Now you're, you're getting to hear snippets of his voice. That well, well I guess that you're talking. We're on the radio now with the uh, how you know, how important that how much you can tell about somebody just by listening to their voice, or you get a you get a mental picture of them that you don't get if you read an article of you know, by the same person. Mm. And Dave, would just in terms of we're going to hear a bit of Matt's voice in just a moment here, but anything about that, that surprised you actually just hearing his voice, or just even how. You, when you when you imagine it in your mind, is there anything about the way he spoke, the texture of his voice, the kind of the? I mean, it's a different era, right? And people talk. It's amazing how people talk somewhat differently, even just a generation or a couple of generations earlier. But what what sticks out with you about the feeling tone of Matt's voice? Yeah, Matt was a heavy smoker all of his life, and you hear that in his voice. But you also hear, I think. Uh, the streets of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And it's this weird blend of, uh, you know, Dante and uh, some mobster from <laughs> Chicago. I mean, it's, he, I remember one of the pieces that Matt wrote that's included in the graphic novel. Uh, we sort of parallel the story of his life with his own sort of auto biographical story although it was not uh, I shouldn't say it's autobiographical it was a metaphor for his life it was a journey story and so it, and it had some of the classic uh, kind of uh, literature tone about it but he also used certain slang uh, expressions, you know, like he would call people, hey, he'd say like, listen, pal, you've got to, you know, and then he'd go on to some uh, <laughs> illustrious thought. Mingling of yeah, Chicago street vernacular and uh, Renaissance 13th century Italian poetry. Let's take listeners into and hear a bit of Matt's voice. whose courage had just about hit bottom, comma, so fearful was I at hearing his answer to my next question, comma, I thought it the safer to sidle up next to him and in hushed tones whispered in his ear, comma, Quote, are you nameless then, Colin Sanza, a family identity to distinguish you from the rest? to the peace and happiness, comma, for which it has long yearned, comma, and once enjoyed, colon, even as the divine capital power has, comma, from the beginning, comma, so intended it, period.
Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Come back the way you are.